We come now to our scripture reading. This morning we are reading from Luke 24, 1 through 12. The word revealed in the written text. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them, and the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember? Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter, Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join with me in prayer? Gracious God, that first Easter morning that left all those there amazed at what had happened. We have come here today to look for ourselves and to remember again, amaze us and reveal yourself to us. For we pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Easter began in a graveyard. I've never been particularly fond of graveyards. It's a bit of an occupational hazard for a minister. I guess it might have something to do with those movies from my childhood where the casket would open and Dracula would emerge. used to scare the heck out of me. Those images, of course, are nothing compared to the images today from movies about zombies, vampires, and the living dead. So I may not be alone here this morning in being just a little haunted by the idea of a graveyard where a couple of guys are standing there saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Maybe it's because I, like many of you, just avoid death as much as possible. We try to keep our distance from it. We pretend it doesn't exist and it won't happen to us. Once Woody Allen famously quipped, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. 
So we keep our distance from death in a myriad of ways. We try to stay healthy. We watch what we eat. We work out. We're careful. It's our way of kind of keeping death at bay. Some of us would just refuse to talk about it. In fact, I suspect you're starting to think now, is he going to talk about death this whole morning? I know people who refuse to plan for it. But then occasionally death catches somebody you love. And then you know, like those women from Galilee, you're going to have to go and you're going to have to see death close up. One of the great ironies of life, we work so hard to save our lives. We work, we have children, we save for their futures, we achieve our dreams, but it all ends in loss. Maybe that's why Jesus kept trying to explain to those who would listen, those who try to save their life will lose it. Last week, the bombings in Brussels. Last fall, the bombings and the shootings in Paris. The shootings in San Bernardino. They all bring death closer to us. And they make it clear to us that death can always bridge the distance and find any one of us. What has crumbled in these incidents and others, like 9-11, is our illusion that somehow we are at a safe distance from violence and death, especially that kind that the rest of the world has had to face for a very long time. And so we keep our distance from graveyards and death, but it does not keep its distance from us. It breaks into our world and it breaks into our experience with frightening force. So how do we live with this prospect of death hanging over us? Well, here's the good news of Easter. You no longer have to. The good news is that in the end, death does not have the final word. Life does. Thanks be to God. Television seems to be fascinated these days with the field of forensic science. Shows like CSI and NCIS and Bones and even Law and Order, they all try to solve crimes, and usually it's death by murder. And they piece together different pieces of evidence from the bodies of the deceased and Almost every episode involves finding some DNA evidence that gets put into a computer and within 30 minutes a suspect appears along with a complete criminal history and a current address. Of course, the reality is something quite different. But I think because of shows like this, we've all grown accustomed to seeing dead bodies on the big screen. In our courts of law, they have what they call the CSI effect now. Real-life juries 
are expecting to be led down the storyline like in the television show and to find some hard evidence like they see on TV. They come to believe that forensic evidence is extensive and decisive. And so if there's not enough of it, the case isn't strong enough. Of course, real-life cases are never solved in under an hour. In fact, the backlog for some forensic labs is 30 to 60 days before you can even consider the case. So this week I got thinking about this a little bit and I went poking around on the internet. The College Board has an interesting story to tell on its website if you're interested in a career in forensic science. 1991, a postal worker in Phoenix was accused of murdering a waitress. And at trial, a forensic scientist testified that the bite mark on the victim matched the suspect's teeth. He was convicted and he was sentenced to death. But years later, other forensic scientists tested DNA that was found on the victim's clothing and it revealed that the postal worker was actually innocent and it identified the real murderer. Perfect for a CSI episode. Forensic science first helped condemn an innocent man and then redeemed him. I wish we had some of that kind of evidence. But what we have in Luke's Gospel is the closest thing to a forensic case. The women from Galilee returned to the scene and the graveyard the first day of that week, but the body was gone. No DNA evidence gathered from the linen cloths that were there left in the graveside. No one is taking fingerprints off the stone that was rolled away from the entrance. There's no computer simulation of the cave, that rock-hewn cave, attempting to calculate the weight of the stone or how many people it must have taken to roll it away. Forensic evidence is non-existent. But it wouldn't convince anybody of the truth if it was. There are only a few witnesses. And they can't get the story straight. I mean, have you ever read all four gospel accounts of what took place? They can't even get the day straight. There are so many discrepancies. Maybe we have a little of the CSI effect, too, when we read these texts. We want everything to be tied up nicely and convincingly in this one hour of worship. But the fact remains, even in the first century, the responses to what happened varied greatly. Some believed, and some didn't. Now, many of you may know that I led a trip to the Holy Land recently during Lent with a number of others of us here in this sanctuary. We visited Galilee and Jerusalem. We saw the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where the crucifixion is said to have occurred and where they laid Christ's body on a slab. We walked the Via Della Rosa where he purportedly walked to his execution we saw the garden tomb where it's reported 
that he was entombed after the crucifixion and where the disciples may have gathered and looked that fateful morning for his missing body. And even today with all our scientific capability, it's a matter of faith. Above the entrance to the tomb in the garden tomb is a plaque that reads, He's not here, but has risen. These words from our text this morning, the Gospel of Luke. And so really, the whole argument for the resurrection is an argument from absence, but not silence. I wish... I could tell you of some extensive and decisive evidence from forensic science that the testimony of these witnesses is undeniably true, but I can't. But I can tell you this, that I too am a witness to the reality that Jesus Christ lives. And so too are many of those who are seated around you in this sanctuary this morning, and so too are many from all over the world who gather today to worship and celebrate that reality. You see, as a pastor, I'm asked often to visit the hospital when someone's dying or to visit a family in a mortuary. I've stood beside beds with dead bodies. I've prayed with families at the moment of their deepest grief. I've walked into rooms guided by circumstances as mundane as a feeling within me and the timing of traffic lights, but as sacred as the direction of the Holy Spirit, arriving just at the moment when someone has taken their last breath and passed from this life to the next. And as a pastor, I don't collect tissue samples or take blood-soaked sheets to the lab. I stay and I remain with the family and I talk with them and I listen to them tell me about their experience of death and of life. About a year ago, I was talking with a good friend of mine, a professor at Princeton Seminary, Dr. Gordon Graham. He told me of one occasion when he was walking into a hospital room in the United Kingdom, just as a doctor was walking out of the door and closed the door, and the doctor commented, there's nothing more to be done. Dr. Gordon Graham said, there's nothing more to be done by you. Those disciples must have felt that morning that there's nothing more to be done except administer a few spices and provide a proper burial. But they discovered that that was not the end, but a whole new beginning. Thanks be to God. It was not the end of what they hoped for. It was the fulfillment of everything they hoped for. Is this idea of the resurrection too fantastic to really believe? Is it just wishful thinking that the reality of death is anything other than just a tragic end of life? Is there nothing more? I was talking with a widow 
once who had lost her husband after many years of life together. She was grieving, she was tearful, but she was grateful for their marriage, for their life together, for their children and grandchildren and even great-grandchildren. She was grateful that she was able to care for him until his dying day, not in some place where he was hooked up to tubes and machines, but in their home. And then she surprised me with a comment and a question. She said, you know, I've always believed, but I wish I had more surety that I will see him again. She wanted some greater assurance that there is a life to come and that we have a chance to see those we love again. So my immediate reaction was to return to the comments that she had just made about how grateful she was for her marriage. And so I said, when you stood there publicly on your wedding day and you promised to love and to cherish one another until death do you part, you had no assurance of what the future would hold. It was only a promise that you made together, come what may. And now, all of those years later, you have realized that that promise was enough. Every couple who gets married wants more assurances, more surety that it's going to work and that their future together is in hand. But what we have is a promise, and if it's taken seriously, it is strong enough to build a life on. Well, maybe we don't have any evidence. I've never been visited by one of those I have loved and lost. Maybe there's no greater assurance that you will see your husband again or that life is only a foreshadowing of what is to come, but we do have God's promises to us. And that's enough. When Christ promises, I am with you always to the end of the age, He promises never to leave or forsake us. When He says, I go to a, prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also, Christ promises not to leave us to our own resources, but to meet us in the valley of the shadow of death in our deepest, darkest hour. And the same God who has proved to be faithful in life will be proved to be faithful in death. That's why the latest addition to the book of confessions in our church begins with the line, in life and in death, we belong to God. That promise may not be all we want, but it is enough. It is all we need. And you see, according to the New Testament, faith in Jesus Christ is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen.
Several disciples come to the place where he was buried in that early morning light. At dawn. But he's not there. He's not dead. Jesus is risen. And so if a light went out on that good Friday, it's only because the dawn has come on Easter Sunday. It's the very heart of Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the world-changing implications of that reality. And so from the beginning, Easter has been our most important celebration. What dawned that first Easter was a new beginning. And maybe you and I need a new beginning today in our own empty garden. Maybe it's time for you and me to find a new quality of life that emanates from that garden long ago because the promise is for you and for me. Resurrection is no far-off promise, but it's a present gift. It's not the offer of hope for the next life. Not the offer of hope for the next life only. It's an offer of hope for this one. And the influence of eternal life can reside with us now and work in us every day. For the believer, life is full of Easter's. We can live more fully and we can live more nobly because we know we live eternally. So come to the One. Believe in the One who provides the pardon for your past, real power in the present, and promise for your future. And let us give thanks to Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. He is risen. 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 Amen.